Please enjoy this encore presentation of 30 Minutes featuring Barbara Kingsolver reading from her latest novel, Flight Behavior, at the Temple of Music and Art. Flight Behavior follows in the Kingsolver tradition of fiction that addresses issues of social justice and demonstrates the impact of culture and politics on human relationships. Set in small-town Tennessee, the novel tells the story of a young woman mired in an unsatisfying life who happens upon a strange phenomena, a forested valley filled with silent red fire. Her attempts to share the sight and find an explanation throw her into a spiraling confrontation with her family, her church, her town, her continent, and finally, the world at large. Today, on 30 Minutes, on part two of a multi-part series, Barbara Kingsolver continues with reading from Flight Behavior and responds to questions. If Della Robia meant to live out her natural life, in this family, the new policy of speaking her mind was going to be a bite in the butt. It had the effect of setting everyone in a room on edge and looking for the door, herself included. But it didn't feel like a choice. Something had opened in her and she felt herself calamitously tilting in like that jeep on the ice. Jimmy was just gone, as others had gone, come and gone before him, she had to admit. She'd stopped answering Jimmy's calls, and Jimmy had failed to be persistent. And still she lay awake at night, no longer watching a nearly touchable lover behind her eyelids, but now seeing flame in patterns that swirled and rippled, a lake of fire. Delarobia inhaled the lanolin-scented air, clearing fire and flood from her head. She was holding up the pace here. It was her job to leave the skirting table every few minutes to fetch a new fleece from the other side of the barn. She bypassed the wooden crate she'd set up as a playpen for Cordy, lightly touching her daughter's fluffy head, and then she booked it over to the men's domain. At one door of the brightly lit shearing stall, her husband had a grip on both horns of a big white ewe, waiting to deliver it into the hands of the shearer, while their skinny neighbor, Peanut Norwood, stood at the opposite door ready to escort out the newly shorn. She smiled at the sight of her tall husband in a pink flannel shirt. In many years of laundry days, she'd watched that thing fade from burgundy to a plain, loud flamingo, and still he called it his red shirt and must have seen it so. Cobb was not a man to wear pink on purpose. <laughs> he motioned her over, giving her a quick one-armed hug that might have been a maneuver to get her out of the shearer's way. She stood for a minute getting an eyeful of the shearer, Luther Hawley. Not that Luther was eye candy in any ordinary sense. He was a wife and grandkids, former high school wrestler type. But when he took up shears, his moves could make a woman think certain thoughts. He took the woolly ewe from Cub, and she struggled for five seconds before surrendering with a sheepish sigh as Luther sat her rump down on the shearing mat. He wrapped his left arm across her breast in a chokehold, while his right hand pushed the vibrating blade gently from throat to belly in long strokes, as careful as a man shaving his own face. The electric shearing rig looked antique, but in Luther's hands it was an instrument of finesse. 
She noticed how each ewe came through the chute to face her duty by first pausing at the entrance, lowering her hindquarters and urinating, giving herself a long moment to size up the scene before walking through that door. Watch and learn, Delarobia thought, feeling an unaccustomed sympathy for the animals, whose dumb helplessness generally aggrieved her. Today, they struck her as cannier than the people. If the forest behind them burned, these sheep would come to terms with their fate in no time flat. Flee or cower, they'd make their best call and fill up their bellies with grass to hedge their bets, in every way more realistic about their circumstances. And the border collies, too. They would watch, ears up, forepaws planted, patiently bearing with the mess made by undisciplined humans as the world fell down around them. Okay, I'm going to skip ahead. Now, I'll jump to, jump to the end of the day. You can probably see how things are going. Delarobia gets kicked out of the proceedings. Her mother-in-law sends her into the house to look after her kids and Crystal's kids, and so she's um, been sort of bullied by these kids all day. And uh, at the end of a long day indoors, the, um, the neighbors and, and her in-laws come in to the house from the barn, but Cub is not there. Um, so she goes out to the barn to look for him, to see what's up. The shadows outside were longer than she'd expected, the long dusk of wintertime. Bear's penned hounds were snuffling and growling low in their throats, maybe catching wind of some raccoon on the ridge they pined to chase down and take apart. Delarobia picked her way across the muddy ground and entered the fluffy storm inside the barn where fluorescent lights blazed and it looked as if it had snowed indoors. She found the broom exactly where she'd left it, beside the leaf rake and boxes of trash bags. If Cub was cleaning up, he was doing it without much in the way of technology. Where was he? Cub, she called, and heard a faint reply. Animal or husband, she couldn't say. She peered into the paddocks one after another, all empty of sheep. She climbed the narrow stairs to the haymow and found him lying on his back across a row of hay bales. This time of year, the mow should have been packed like a suitcase, filled side to side and top to bottom, but the cavernous loft was more than half empty. They'd lost the late summer cutting because three consecutive rainless days were needed for cutting, raking, and baling a hay crop. All the farmers they knew had leaned into the forecasts like gamblers banking on a straight flush. Some took the risk, mowed hay that got rained on, and lost. Others waited and also lost. Cobb, honey, what's wrong? You dead? About... I've seen you further gone than that and resurrected at the sight of a cold beer. He sat up straight. You got one? From your mother's kitchen. He flopped back against the hay, taking off his cap and settling it over his face. She sat down opposite him on the lowest row of bales, which were stacked like a wide staircase leading up to the rafters. She dragged one close for a footstool, swung up her short legs, and leaned back against a prickly wall of hay, waiting for further signs of life from her husband. Lying on his back, he resembled a mountain, highest in the midsection, 
tapering out on both ends. You're just worn out, she offered. No, it's more than that. What, are you sick? Sick and tired. Of what? Farming. I hear you. She was conscious of her unfinished cigarette, aware that only a fool or city person would smoke in a hayloft. It could catch fire in a flash. But that would be in some year other than this one, in which the very snapping turtles had dragged themselves from silted ponds and roamed the soggy land looking for higher ground. Cub lay silent a while, then spoke from under his cap. Dad's fixin' to sign a contract with some loggers. You mean to cut timber? Where? At Hollow up behind our house. All the way to the top, he said. Her heart slipped in its casings, thinking of what she'd seen up there and could not discuss. What possessed him to do that now? That timber's been standing a while. Taxes went up and he's got a balloon payment on his equipment loan. And you and I are behind on our house payments. Money's coming in even lower this year than last. He's thinking we'll have to buy hay out of Missouri this winter after we lost so much of ours. She looked at the backs of her hands. Just one month behind, you and me. She'd been hoping Bear and Hester didn't know about the missed payment, but every nickel gained or lost on that farm went on the same ledger. Bear and Hester knew every detail of their lives, as did their neighbors, and eventually the community as a whole, thanks to the news team down at Hare Affair. <laughs> I talked to the man at the bank about our payment, Cub. He said it was no big deal, as long as we're cut up, caught up by year's end. Well, foreclosure on Dad's equipment loan is a big deal. She felt something in herself drop. That's not an issue, is it? The word was mentioned. She wanted to throw something, though not necessarily at Cub. She hated how his parents left them in the dark, even on something so important. Bear earned more on metalwork in his shop than from anything that happened in this barn. For years, he'd gotten steady contracts making replacement parts for factories and something for the DOT. A bracket for guardrails was her understanding. He'd borrowed a huge sum to expand his machine shop just a few months before transportation departments everywhere suddenly came up strapped and people decided they hated government spending. When do you think they were planning to clue us in about a foreclosure? I don't know. Just one day the phone would ring and they'd be like, hey, pack up the kids, get a new life, we just lost your half of the family deal. Or that they're moving in with us, or us with them. Cub, I swear, your mother and me under one roof, you'd just as well call 911 right now because homicide will ensue. <laughs> I know that, hon. Why wouldn't they just repossess his equipment? Depreciation, I guess. It's not enough. They needed that lien on the farm. This shocked her. The equipment was so nearly new. She wondered if anyone totally understood how banks could make the ground shift underfoot and turn real things into empty air just with a word. So what happens to us? 
Cub remained mute and supine on his bed of hay. His inert response to this crisis was predictable. In case of fire, take a nap. She tried an easier question. How'd you happen to come by this information? Listening. He talks more to Peanut Norwood in a day than he does me in a year. Lord, if he's telling the neighbors of his downfall, we must be pretty near the end of the rope. You know your dad. Yeah, I do. It's worse for the Norwoods, I guess. Peanut wants to log out his side, too. They said it works best if they clear-cut the whole deal at once. A clear-cut? Cobb, honey, could you at least sit up and discuss this like a human? You mean a clear-cut where they take out everything? Cub sat up and gave her a sorry look. He had fleece clinging to his trousers and hay in his hair, a sight to see. That's where they'll give you the most money, he said. According to Dad, it's easier when they don't have to pick and choose the trees. She stared at Cub, trying to find holy matrimony in there, pushing her way back through the weeds as she always did. The cause of their marriage had been conspicuous at the wedding, but she'd gone a little foggy on the earlier motives. <laughs> she, she recalled boyish things that had made him lovable, but you could run out of gas on boyish. That was the thing. A message that should be engraved in every woman's wedding band. So this is a done deal, she said finally. Yep, whatever's too little to cut up for lumber, he said they grind into paper. Oh, Cub, they'll make it look like a war zone, like the Buckman place. Have you seen, have you looked at that mountain since they finished with it? It looks like they blew up bombs all over it. And then all these rains started and the whole mountain is sliding into the road. I have to drive past there every time I go to Food King. Cub's voice flagged in ready defeat. Well, you won't have to drive past Dad's upper hollow when you go get your groceries. Are they from here, she asked. Is who? The logging company. Whoever's in charge. No, Cub said. A guy came over from Knoxville. The outfit's owned by Weyerhaeuser or something. Out west. Well, that figures, doesn't it? Come on and get the poor man's goods. Haul them out of here to make I don't know what. Toilet paper for city people, I guess. Well, I'm sorry you see it that way, hon, but I don't see where we have a choice. He looked sorry, all right. It made her want to punch something, all that sorry. I need to get back to the house now, she said. Hester was feeding the kids their supper, probably an array of items from the choking hazard checklist. <laughs> she, she stood up, but instead of heading for the stairs, walked on impulse to the end of the loft where the giant door was propped open to ventilate the hay. A person could just run the length of the haymow and take a flying jump. For the first time in her life, she could see perfectly well how a person arrived on that flight path. Needing an alternative to the present so badly, the only doorway was a high window. She'd practically done it herself. The next thing to it. 
She thought of that recklessness, and it terrified her now, making her step back from the haymo door and close her eyes, trying to calm down. When she opened them, she looked down on the newly shorn sheep milling around in the dusk. Pastor Ogle at church liked to speak of Jesus looking down on his flock from on high, and she suddenly saw how right that was. An all-knowing creator probably would find humans to be just as little and mixed up and sorry as these sheep. That was Barbara Kingsolver reading from her latest novel, Flight Behavior, at the Temple of Music and Art on 30 Minutes, 91.3 KXCI Tucson. Up next, Barbara Kingsolver responds to audience questions. Uh, this is my f- favorite part of every evening because, you know, it's a surprise. I mean, I know what happens in this book. This is, there's a, no surprises in there um, for me. But um, I, I would love to hear from you and talk about whatever you want to talk about. And um, so I'll just call on people and I'll just repeat questions so that everyone else can hear. And um, the first night of of this tour, the, um, there was a, a man who moderated the questions, and he, he said, uh, before you ask a question, ask yourself, what is a question? <laughs> Good advice. <laughs> so I will pass that nugget on to you. And um, I will just also say, if, if you're, if a part of, if a, I'm going to have to repeat this question. So if part of what you want to say is that you really appreciate me or if you really appreciate my books. I appreciate that too, but I'm not going to repeat that because I was, you know, I was raised better than that. Um, so if you could just ask a question, then um, that would be really, that'd be wonderful. So, um, yes. All right, the question is that she's an anxiety-ridden master's student who needs to write and is procrastinating. And um, so uh, the question was, how do I get myself to write? Well, um, I think my... (laughs) I think the first and most important thing I could say is if you hate to write, do something else. (laughs) I mean, this, it may be too late for this to help you. You may have sort of painted yourself in a corner. You know, you have this committee and stuff, and you can't say, Barbara Kingsolver told me I don't have to. Um, <laughs> you probably do. But I love to write. I mean, seriously, I, I hear other writers complain. You know, they'll say dramatically, oh, it is a curse to be a writer. And I think, are you kidding you know those people that put tar on the road in summer? I mean, okay, and maybe there's someone who do, here who does that and loves it, and I salute you, and I'm glad, but to me that looks like a curse. It is, um, I mean, that, if I had the job, I could go home at night and say, oh, God, I hate my work. So, um, but I don't. I love to write. How I get myself to write is wake up. And in the morning, I'm seriously, I wake up with words accumulating in my brain like a backed up, no, I won't go there. That, um, <laughs> they're nicer words than that, usually. Um, 
No, I just have words pouring and flooding into my brain, and it's usually like four in the morning. It's not, and I'm waiting for the rooster to crow so I can get up and I can go to my desk and I can start putting those into a file because there is because I can't wait to write, to make another scene, to make another character, to move my story forward. And for me, the discipline is to stop and go do other stuff. So I think this is a good sign, you know, that I found the right profession and I'm, you know, I'm really glad. However, having said that, I know that there are times when all of us have to write something and it's difficult. I mean, I know I heard people for years talk about writer's block. I ha I have I raised children. You know, I my career as a novelist began exactly the day I had my first child. It's quite a story, actually. But I have always been managing motherhood and kids. You know, my kids had the very good grace to grow up. Um, but for most of the time I've been a writer, I've been managing kids and, and, and wishing I had time to write. And so that's one solution to writer's block. You know, have a whole bunch of kids. So you know. <laughs> So you never have enough time to write, so you're saying, oh, I wish, I wish, I wish I could get to my desk and write. So, um, no, but in some sense, I mean, that was a joke. Don't have children just, you know, for that reason. But there is something about the preciousness and scarcity of writing time in my life that has made me always feel like a racehorse at the gate, you know, just, you know, that's my racehorse impression. Um, uh, that was it. Um, it just... I can't wait. So, and maybe that has to do with, you know, managing my writing life. However, okay, I keep saying, however, I think, so all those years I was thinking, what is writer's block? What would that be like? I think I know because I do experience something when I'm beginning a novel and I feel like I can't do it. I can't. I'm gonna, this is going to suck. This is going to be so bad. Um, every time I start a novel, that's how I begin, by saying, ugh, this one, okay, squeaked by, you know, those, all those other times, but this time, ugh, it's just not going to work. So I think another name for writer's block is writer's terror, right? That you're so afraid that you're going to write something terrible that you just, it's easier not to start. So here is my solution for that. I have one. And I do this, I've done this 14 books, 14 times. I spend those days in dread, feeling like this isn't going to go well. It's already not going well. It's going to be terrible. I say to myself, calm down. The wonderful thing is nobody's in here. Nobody has to see it. I'll just go ahead and write a suck novel. And I won't tell anybody. And so I do this little, I make this little deal with myself. And um, so you could do that too. You could say, nobody has to, I'm just going to write crap today. Nobody has to see it. Just go ahead and write crap all day long. People do it all the time. Seriously. And then, and then, once you have a draft of something, then you start to revise it. And revision, revision is where the good work really comes. So, um, is that helpful? Okay. Good. Ask Barbara. Um, 
What I, the question is, I have these degrees, undergraduate and graduate degrees in biology, and so the question was, when I was working on my undergraduate degree in biology, what did I hope to become? Employed. <laughs> that is the absolute and simple truth. I always loved writing so much. I always loved reading from the time I was very little. I, I read obsessively. I couldn't stop reading. Um, I would go in the library of our town and sneak around, because we had this funny library. The librarian's basic mission in life was to protect the books from children. And so, <laughs> and that made me want them all the more. So I, was, I do remember, like as a third grader, sneaking in through the stacks and hiding and reading books. I, and, and as much as I loved to take words in, I also loved to put them out. So I, I always wrote stories. I wrote a novel when I was 14. It was horrible, but it was, you know, it was a novel. I just couldn't stop writing. However, I did not remotely imagine anyone would actually pay me to do that. And statistically speaking, that's a pretty reasonable assumption. I'm not kidding. I mean, it's very, very hard to make a writing, make your life, and make a living as a writer, especially of creative. Um, I mean, advertising copy, okay, but but creative writing, it's hard to get someone to pay you to do that. I didn't expect it. I didn't imagine it. I didn't dare hope for it. I grew up in a place where, in a rural place, um, Delarobia and Hester, you know, are my people. That's where I grew up, and in that culture. To say you wanted to be a writer when you grew up would be exactly like saying you wanted to be a fairy when you grew up. <laughs> it just people would just think you were ridiculous and they would indulge you. They'd say, that's nice, honey. <laughs> you sweet little thing. Um, so I was really, I felt incredibly lucky to go to college. I was the only person in my graduating class of high school to go to college. I wanted to learn about the world, so biology and science seemed f firm to me. It seemed like that was going to give me something to stand on in the world so that I could support myself. I still wrote stories all the time. I didn't take, I took the English classes that you take in college, but I didn't take writing classes. I, it's like Tinkerbell 101, you know. I didn't think that would be allowed even. It would have been fun, but I had stuff I had to learn. So, kept writing, kept writing, apply, uh, came to Tucson. I'm not going to tell you the whole story, but anyway. So that's what I hoped. And I still hoped when I went to graduate school that I would learn more science and become even more employable. The writing just kept coming out. And then to my immense surprise, the writing started getting, you know, I was sort of like sneaked it out, you know, into the world, and it kept getting published in little ways and then bigger ways. And this is the key. Okay, everyone's waiting for the key. <laughs> to becoming an employable writer. My first job out of graduate school was as a, as a scientific writer. I worked for the University of Arizona writing about science I had this facility with words because I'd just been doing it all along and found that I was an indispensable kind of 
unicorn, a person who could go and talk to scientists, hear their language, and come out of that and write something that non-scientists could understand and even could enjoy reading. And so that, man, that started getting me work. And I, I moved pretty quickly from working for the University of Arizona to becoming a freelance science writer because editors were all too happy to find someone who knew about science and who could write. And so I have, I feel that's my special place in the world. Um, a person who really understands and loves science but can write um, a language comprehensible to non-scientists is still what I do in fiction, um, particularly in this book. This is about the methods of science. This book explains, among other things, the difference between causation and correlation, which is the number one pet peeve in my household. When, I, you, know, when you read journalism you know, about the latest scientific report, they always screw that up, right? Okay, like, uh, corporal punishment of children leads to lower IQs. Maybe if they're beaten about the head. <laughs> no, those two things, those things happen together. You know, the study showed that both of those things happen. It didn't show that either one caused the other. People just jumped to conclusions. So stuff like that that is very important, I think, for people to understand. But they don't because they didn't study science. I feel is important uh, for me to write about in a way that's so compelling that you didn't even know you were going to read about cause and correlation. Aha! Uh -huh. So um, that's kind of veiled advice. You've been listening to Barbara Kingsolver reading from her latest novel, Flight Behavior, and answering questions at the Temple of Music and Art. Flight Behavior follows in the Kingsolver tradition of fiction that addresses issues of social justice and demonstrates the impact of culture and politics on human relationships. This has been part two of a multi-part series. Thank you for listening to this encore presentation of 30 Minutes featuring Barbara Kingsolver, which originally aired on December 2nd, 2012.